0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Olorunipo with The Washington Post. Hi, this is
0: Amy Britton calling from The Post. This is Peter Jamison from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, December 8th. Today, Biden's new health team, burnout for nursing home workers, and inauguration in a pandemic.
2: For the past couple of weeks, President-elect Joe Biden has each week been announcing one component of his administration.
3: Good afternoon.
2: The president-elect has made very clear that he regards fighting the coronavirus pandemic, the most urgent mission of his new administration.
3: Today, I'm very proud to be announcing our healthcare and COVID team at a critical time.
2: My name is Amy Goldstein. I am the Washington Post national healthcare policy writer.
3: I know that out of our collective pain, we're going to find a collective purpose to control the pandemic, to save lives, and to heal as a nation. Today, I'm pleased to announce a team that is going to do just that.
0: So before we get into those individuals who are going to be running pandemic response, could you just talk a little bit more generally about the Department of Health and Human Services, what it does, what agencies are a part of
2: it? Sure. HHS is the largest department in the government, except for the Defense Department, if you look at how much money it spends. And it's really a very sprawling operation. It has at least four components that are absolutely integral to fighting the coronavirus pandemic. That includes the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which is the government's public health agency, the Food and Drug Administration. It includes the National Institutes of Health, and it also includes the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which provides public insurance to millions of Americans. So the HHS secretary really has a very wide domain to focus on.
0: And who is Biden appointing as his HHS secretary?
2: Well, it turns out that on Friday, he offered the job to California's attorney general, whose name is Javier Becerra. He currently, the attorney
3: general of California, leading the second largest Justice Department in America, only behind the United States Department of Justice.
2: And that's a little bit of an unorthodox pick. I don't know that there's ever been... A state attorney general who's been the HHS secretary, often it's been a governor or a recent governor or somebody who's in other ways had more direct experience uh, working on healthcare policy. But the people close to the president-elect have been emphasizing that for an attorney general, Becerra really does have a lot of um, health care background. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a member of Congress for 12 terms or 24 years, and as attorney general, he's been involved in an awful lot of litigation challenging policies of the Trump administration, notably including being the lead of a group of about 20 Democratic-led states or states with Democratic attorneys general that are fighting to preserve the Affordable Care Act in a court case that's now before the Supreme Court. COVID-19
4: has made one thing undeniable. We safeguard the Affordable Care Act. Lives depend on it. At stake tomorrow are not just details or differences of opinion or numbers on a paper.
3: At stake are people, their health, their livelihood.
0: And if a big part of his professional experience from the last few years has been fighting big Trump administration goals or priorities or efforts, then what can we expect from him now that he will be on the other side inside the administration?
2: Well, as I always say, time will tell. He was actually a proponent of what's known as Medicare for all or the idea of a single payer health care system, which is something that President-elect Biden has very much not supported. Um President Biden is a big fan of expanding upon the Affordable Care Act, which he worked on when he was uh, President Obama's vice president. As I was talking to people last night, confirming that he was, in fact, the choice for HHS and why he had been chosen, people were telling me that the attorney general has made very clear that he will go along with the views on health care of the president he will be serving.
0: And I want to talk a little bit more about some of the other individuals who have also been announced as Biden appointments.
2: Who are they? Well, there's a team. And um, if you think about it, there is somebody who is running HHS, but there are always people inside a White House who have policy responsibilities and management responsibilities too for big issue areas. And it appears that what the Biden administration is going to do is really beef up the healthcare and particularly the COVID response right within the White House. So the coordinator of that is going to be somebody named Jeff Zients. He has been one of the co-chairs of the Biden transition. Uh, he also worked in a very important role in the Obama White House. He was for a while head of the National Economic Council So he is one of several people the president-elect has chosen both for healthcare roles and other roles across the administration with whom he has direct knowledge and working experience. The president-elect also has chosen as the Surgeon General for the United States a man named Vivek Murthy, who is both one of the three leaders of the Biden Transitions COVID-19 Advisory Board, and also was uh, the Surgeon General for some years during the Obama administration and a few months into President Trump's tenure in the White House. In addition, the head of the Centers for Disease Control is now known. And that's a woman who hasn't really had direct experience working with President-elect Biden, Uh, She's a very well-respected infectious disease specialist at Massachusetts General Hospital, and her name is Rochelle Walensky. So what are some of the criticisms that have come up so
0: far for some of these proposed appointments?
2: Already, we're hearing that there's some concern from different quarters that neither Attorney General Becerra nor Rochelle Walensky have the kind of traditional public health backgrounds that some people, particularly in the world of medicine and public health, think would really be a good idea in this time when fighting this awful pandemic is such an important priority.
0: Then there is also Anthony Fauci, who, of course, has been a huge and very public figure during the last year of this pandemic, and he is going to continue on into the Biden administration. What role will he have going forward, and why do you think Biden wanted
2: to keep him? Obviously, during the current Trump administration, Anthony Fauci has been a leading voice about the pandemic when the president, who's had some disagreements with him, has allowed him to speak publicly. Traditionally, the Surgeon General, who's going to be Vivek Murthy, also has been a public voice for the central healthcare issues of whatever time it is. So how these two well-known figures are going to interrelate is yet to be seen. Late last week, even before it was clear who was going to be HHS secretary, the president-elect made very clear that he wanted Anthony Fauci at his side. If I had to guess, and guessing's always an occupational bad idea for somebody who does what I do for a living, but it appeared that he wanted to make clear that this trusted voice on the pandemic was going to be by his side. I mean, polling for months has shown that Tony Fauci's public support is higher than that of other people in the current administration. I think that Biden wanted to uh, say quite explicitly, don't worry, he's not going anywhere.
0: And, you know, I think it's really easy to look at all these choices and think specifically about how they're going to affect coronavirus, the pandemic response. But I'm also curious about what these choices say about the president-elect's approach to healthcare and whether healthcare is going to be a big part of how he's thinking about the central functions and, and shifts that will be happening in these agencies going forward.
2: Well, regardless of what these specific choices signify even throughout the campaign, then candidate Biden was saying that he cares an awful lot about expanding insurance coverage and access to health care. The you know, wide spread of the coronavirus and the loss of health insurance as people have been losing jobs, really just amplifies for him the need for this other part of his healthcare agenda. You know, I think you can expect that how quickly and how readily he can succeed at expanding coverage is going to hinge in large part on who ends up controlling the Senate. But all along, this has been another part of his domestic agenda, even before the coronavirus became so front and center.
0: Amy Goldstein covers healthcare care policy for The Post.
1: In the spring, people started applauding hospital workers and ambulance drivers at seven o'clock every night. You know, you open your window, bang on pots, play a trumpet, something like that. You know, these were the heroes on the front line. Nursing home workers weren't getting any of that kind of applause or that kind of love, and they noticed. They said, you know, what why why are we different? We're also committing ourselves, coming to work every day, risking our health doing our best for the people under our care. And yet the image of a nursing home kind of was cemented by that news report in the spring of a nursing home in New Jersey, where 17 bodies were found stacked in a kind of makeshift morgue.
0: Will England is a business reporter for The Post. For the past several months, he's been reporting on how the pandemic has left nursing home staff feeling even more overworked and undervalued.
1: There's this feeling like, oh, yeah, everybody just feels like, you know, nursing homes are these horrible places, and they're run by greedy, grasping companies, and they, they all the employees are these immigrants, and they, don't, you know, they don't re- matter. That's this kind of resentful feeling that I think is kind of sweeping through the profession. The problem is that there have been a number of nursing home employees who have either quit or fallen ill or died, and in a business that has a chronic problem with short staffing, that's gotten even much worse. They're working long hours and they're running from uh, task to task. Many people have told me is they feel like you know they're not giving proper attention to the residents. They're not stopping to have a little chat. They're not checking on continuity of care for those who need continuity of care. These, these were problems that existed before the pandemic. There was a lot of burnout in the nursing home business, but it's even worse now.
0: Can you describe some of the experience of these people who are working at nursing homes and the things that they've had to deal with over the past few months?
1: So, for instance, I spoke with a nurse in Paris, Texas, and she's working a 12-hour shift every night looking after 40 to 50 residents, the number fluctuates, Hmm. with two assistants, two nursing assistants to help her. That's a lot of people to be looking after.
5: My name is Rebecca Raphael. I'm an LVN charge nurse at a nursing home. I'm 36 years old.
1: And she's got to keep doing this. It's it's completely wearing and exhausting.
5: Just absolutely exhausted. Um, on a daily basis, we are not able to give the adequate care that we would normally give and that these patients deserve, which is what has me so upset.
1: So Rebecca, or Becca, as she calls herself, is really angry about... A couple of things at, at the nursing home. She says that therapists who come from who you know sort of make the rounds of nursing homes have been ordered to work at, in one visit with both symptomatic and um, COVID negative patients, which of course is a you know really risky procedure. She's angry that uh, she has feels like in taking care of forty to fifty patients on a twelve hour shift. You know she, she doesn't have time to even say hello to most of them. The one thing that she ought to be doing, which is providing comfort, she feels like she doesn't have the time for that. Um, the company that runs the nursing home, which is called DiversaCare, of course, claims that they're doing the very best they can. And these are challenging times and, you know, but they're confident in, in the heroes uh, who work for them. And, you know, she really scoffs at that because she doesn't feel like they treat the employees like heroes.
0: And what do you think are some of the other factors that have made their jobs more difficult, especially during the pandemic?
1: Well, an issue here is that something like 70 percent of the nursing homes in the United States are run by companies that are in it for the profit. This is, you know, in contrast to hospitals or most medical institutions. So there's constant attention to the bottom line and constant attention to cutting costs, even now during the pandemic, even as The federal government has pumped several billion dollars in emergency aid into the nursing home industry.
5: For me personally, the hardest part of the job is knowing, knowing that these companies have gotten so much money to help set off or offset, excuse me, some of these issues that we are currently facing. And. Every day I have to watch my patients suffer, my teammates suffer because it never made it to us.
1: There's still this desire to do everything as as efficiently as possible would be the way the managers look at it do everything on the as much on the cheap as possible would be the way the employees look at it and an issue big issue here is that. The financial structure of nursing homes is built around the idea that they can charge extra for extra services. And that's not what the issue is with COVID-19. With COVID-19, you've got to have infection control. And studies have shown that the more registered nurses you have on staff, typically the better a nursing home does. Neither of those things get rewarded financially by Medicare or Medicaid. And so, of course, there's not much emphasis on that among uh, nursing home managers.
0: So for the people who work in these nursing homes, have some of them considered just quitting or or has the situation gotten bad enough that they are not sure that they can actually carry on with
1: this work? I spoke to one nurse who quit. She was a traveling hospice nurse. So she went from nursing home to nursing home doing hospice care. And she quit because she felt her company was forcing her to go into places and, you know, at great risk of spreading the disease around. This was in Michigan. And she just felt it was immoral. And the benefits of, of what she was providing weren't worth the risks. She was posing both to her patients and to herself. So she quit. But then others I've spoken to, you know, have thought about quitting. Why should I keep at this?
5: I, I, I've said before, I make about as much as the people who hold a slow and stop sign on the on the road crew, you know, for road construction.
1: But then there's a sense of, well, you know, this is my life. This is what I committed myself to. And the patients need me. If, I don't, if I'm not there for them, who will be there for them? That's an attitude I heard over and over again.
5: I feel like I'm made to do this. I'm made to care for people. Enough of us have to speak up and say something. and Somebody has to do something.
0: And and what is it like for the patients in these facilities and for their families if they're seeing so many of the people, so many of the staff who are there for them, either leaving, getting sick, or, or just being so burned out that they can't give that level of care that they might have otherwise?
1: I think in many ways it can be worse or more anxiety provoking for the families because it's so difficult to know what's going on in the nursing home. They can arrange FaceTime calls with their relatives, but because of the short staffing, it's often difficult to find a time when when there's a staffer available to sort of put the call through or to hold the phone in some cases. There's a fair amount of mistrust among families about whether they're getting the full story from nursing home management. And, you know, there's great worry that, you know, the the grandmother or mother or, you know, father is uh, all alone and and feeling miserable and they can't um, really get a sense of what's happening. Over the summer, more and more states were starting to allow very carefully supervised visits. Uh, So there was some loosening up. But now states, Maryland, for instance, are shutting back down again and making it harder to visit with members of your family in a nursing home.
0: So when you think about all of these problems that are facing nursing home staff right now, what is a potential solution? What would need to change to be able to make the situation at least a little bit better for them?
1: Well, states are trying to do fast track certification for nursing assistants so that in a matter of six to eight weeks, something like that, you could get certified as a nursing assistant and be eligible for employment in a nursing home a problem that the nursing home business is facing is that so many people who've worked in them over the years got so fed up with management imperatives to cut costs. And, you know, and there's a lot of been a lot of sort of financial gaming of the system that goes on and even some cheating that there's a lot of resentment and not too much eagerness for people to leap into this particular field. Um, there isn't a deep bench of of retirees, for instance, who would just begin you know, itching to get back to work if, if they possibly could.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about the incentives for, for someone to become a person who works at a nursing home, and it feels like, well, you're going to be working in a place where you're probably going to be underpaid for the incredible work that you do. You are going to be overwhelmed because there aren't enough people there, and that you're not going to get the respect, sometimes even from families of the people who are residents there, and and certainly not from management in many cases. And so, like, why do it?
1: Longer term, a lot of people, and I, I think I would agree with this, think that the financial structure, the financial incentives need to be changed. There needs to be more money, and salaries need to be raised, it needs to become a, a a much more valued profession than it is right now. But in the short term, it's it's a it's a tough call. Nursing homes have gotten along by sort of exploiting the the, the good faith and idealism of those in the nursing profession, and that's kind of coming up short now.
0: But at least for the short term, when it comes to this pandemic, it does seem like there is some hope on the horizon, considering that staff at nursing homes and long-term care facilities are going to be prioritized when it comes to receiving this first wave of the vaccine. Do the people that you talk to see that as something that is at least a little bit heartening to them?
1: Yes, there there is a, a glimmer of light on the horizon, and everyone, I think, is well aware of that. It's not quite clear, really, how quickly this could be rolled out for the more than a million residents and about a million nursing home employees in the country. There is some concern, really, that this vaccine may have less efficacy in elderly and frail people than it would in otherwise healthy people. This is true of the flu vaccine, which is why the elderly get a a different kind of a flu shot when they get one the other issue, of course, is this has to be given twice with either a three or a four week separation, depending on which, which version you're using. And so that makes everything just a lot more complicated.
0: And so even though the messaging that we're hearing is that, okay, nursing homes are going to get this first, everyone in a nursing home is going to be taken care of, that just because of the logistical challenges to actually executing that. And certainly we've seen logistical challenges at every stage of this pandemic, that there is some skepticism about whether that is actually the real solution that is going to be coming anytime soon.
1: Let's say, just for the sake of argument, that it really is very successful. And if they give the first shots on December 21st, you're looking at the second shot in mid-January. And so between now and mid-January, how many cases of COVID-19 are you going to have in nursing homes? Every week, that number goes up and up and up.
0: Will England is a business reporter for The Post. one more thing from political reporter Matt Visor on what to expect on January 20th, 2021. Typically,
4: the inauguration is a huge festival on the west side of the Capitol. There's a huge gathering on a platform that is built specifically for the inauguration filled with our top elected officials, former presidents, everybody there to see the event take place. And the Washington Mall is usually pretty crowded too. Everybody gets tickets, everybody wants to be there to watch this event take place. And that's just the actual swearing in ceremony. There's there's tons of other things that go along with the inauguration. There's a luncheon that's held with members of Congress. There's a parade down Pennsylvania Avenue to, to go back to the White House. There's inaugural balls. It's a whole like sort of days long festival around the transfer of power that typically
3: takes place. First and foremost thing is we're going to follow again the science and the recommendation of the experts on keeping people safe. So it is highly unlikely there will be a million people on the mall going all the way down to the memorial. Biden's inauguration
4: will look like none other. There will be a swearing in, there will be an inauguration speech. But people will be in masks. They'll be socially distant from one another. They will probably have to take coronavirus tests before they can get onto the platform with the president-elect, uh, soon to be president. All of this sort of festival-like atmosphere around it will probably be much different. There may not be inaugural balls. There there may not be a sort of a full parade. You know, so a lot of the gatherings that take place around it are, are going to probably not happen or or happen in a much different way.
3: People want to celebrate. People want to be able to say, we've passed the baton, we're moving on, democracy has functioned. But I think you're going to see something that's closer to what the convention was like than the typical inauguration. One thing that Biden
4: and his team have talked a lot about is is what they view as the successful Democratic National Convention. They do have experience with putting on an event that is more reliant on a virtual setting than it is in-person contact, which had virtual gatherings, it had people kind of in a Zoom-like setting. So they're kind of looking to that as, as a model But that is kind of rubbing up against another kind of uh, fundamental part of the inauguration that is important to Biden and his advisors, which is to showcase that this is a major historical moment. And they want Americans to view Biden as their president. And so they want this event to look like events of the past or at least kind of feel a little bit like a, a transfer of power is taking place, that Joe Biden is a legitimate president, and, and he's going to, you know, give an inaugural address like we've seen most presidents give in, in modern history. So it will have the look of something different, but they very much want it to still have the feel of, of a transfer of power that is taking place.
0: Matt Weiser covers national politics for The Post. that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today is the 40th anniversary of the death of John Lennon. If you haven't already heard it, this is a good day to go back and listen to a story we did on November 20th about Lennon's last album and the last weeks of his life. You can find a link to that episode in today's show notes and at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.